Hey, y'all, it's Trina, and this is our hot take. It is January, and normally we do, like, beginning of the year stuff. But this year, I'm starting off January in a classroom, y'all. I am back teaching. I am a professor at Cal State Fullerton, and I'm teaching African-American families and African-American youth. This is my first semester on campus, y'all, and my first day was yesterday. It was really exciting. Um... And I just wanted to big up Cal State Fullerton a little bit because the conversation that we're having today on the podcast is around racial equity in schools. Um, and I'm really excited to be teaching, you know, these classes about racial equity for black families and black children and what are the impacts of racism on black folks in this country looking at all the systems and the way that racism lives and it is better in our systems and institutions, right? So y'all know it's a whole debate going on has been going on around critical race theory and so today we're going to be talking to someone who who has done a lot of research about um racial equity in schools and what does it take to get there and one of the solutions that everybody's proposing is critical race theory because we need to actually start having the honest conversations about um, race in this country and how some folks are privileged and some folks are not privileged and how some folks are more oppressed and other folks are not oppressed. Um, and unfortunately, there's always this great debate about like, does critical, critical race theory teach you, teach you that all white people are bad or, you know, and, and that's not what it's about, right? It's literally about understanding the way that this society, our institutions are deeply embedded with racism. It's about telling the hard truth and the facts. Um, and it's so funny because when, um, you know, the opponents of critical race theory, the folks who want to ban it, they utilize language like, we just want to tell the truth about our history. We don't want this, like, other history. There's a political agenda is what, um, what's that guy? The... Um, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is recently said that like he actually recently blocked um, an African-American studies course in a school um, because it included things such as like queer theory or abolitionist thinking um, theory. And so it's, it's just like, yeah, critical race theory is so complex. And I think that young people are so brilliant and smart. And it's like we're holding them back from understanding the way that this society actually works. And when they say they don't want these facts because it's fake truth or fake news, it's because it's actually the really the truth. And they want to continue to believe they're the delusion. And so I just wanted to say, like, I'm back in classes. We're having conversations. And I did want to shout out Cal State Fullerton because recently they have made a choice to stop sending their teacher students. So, you know, the School of Education that trains teachers to go into schools um, and they get like to be teacher learner students where they go and they're placed out of school and they do a certain number of hours of field study. Um that they made a choice, the school made a choice to withhold sending their, their student teachers from Cal State Fullerton to a particular school district in Orange County because that district banned critical race theory. Because it's like, well, how can the teachers who are learning at Cal State Fullerton about critical race theory are learning about racism and racial equity as a teacher? That's what they're learning at the university level. So they're going to schools and then they go into these schools that are told that they can't talk about. They can't talk about race. They can't talk about bias. They can't talk about ethnicity. They can't talk about... Um, history in a full way right they're limited right and so the university is like well then why would we send our students to these schools where they are not able to be fully um fully actualized around their learnings from the college so you know I just you know I'm not trying to really big up a university because I just really appreciate that we are 
as a professor at this school that I'm learning and, and being able to engage with these students. But the conversation today with our guest is really about what can educators do. And I think me showing up in a classroom, right, with my box braids and my necklace with my Africa print and me playing music and having hip hop and doing call and response, right? I am doing something for those students in the classroom who might see themselves in me. Um, I know that I'm doing that for those students who see themselves in me, who see themselves reflected. And I know that also the other students in the classroom get a chance to experience a black woman um, lead and facilitate in probably ways that they have not experienced. And so um, I just want y'all to wish me luck this month, this, <laughs> this year, um, as I get into these classes, but also just really as y'all look forward to the rest, you know, this is the rest of the school year technically, but the beginning of a year to think about all the ways that we are teaching um, and supporting our children's academic, um, emotional and social emotional learning um, to really look at all the ways that their full identity can be received in classrooms, right? So when you go into your school and when you choose your school and you talk to your kids about school, and we're going to talk about that in this episode, make sure that the schools and the spaces that they're in allow them to have the conversations that they want to have, that allow them to see themselves in the curriculum, that allows them to ask the questions, to be curious for their history and their lived experience to be reflected in the curriculum. Um, and that is the goal, I hope, for all educators and for all parents as they go into these schools. Um, so the hot topic is really like let's all of y'all, wherever you are, like look into critical race theory and what is being taught to your kids. Um, make sure that the schools and the school districts and the administrators and the educators are really thinking about how do we tell the real truth um, of our history um, and that American history is black history and that we need to to liberate the educational system to be a truth-telling space that honors the fullness of all of our humanities, especially black and brown um, histories. All right, let's get into this episode. Raising black children in the United States can be really scary. And as a black mother, I realized I was parenting from fear and I wanted to make a commitment to parent for liberation. You are listening to Parenting for Liberation podcast. And I am your host, Trina Green-Brown. Each month, I'm joined by other Black parents, and we discuss our own journeys to push past our fears so that we can raise our beautiful Black children to be whole, free, and liberated. Wake up, everybody. Hey, y'all. This is Trina with Parenting for Liberation. And on this episode, we speak with university professor and author Dakota Irby about what institutions need to do to ensure that black children have their voices heard and their lived experiences seen. What can parents do to affect positive change in the school system? Um, Dr. Irby is an associate professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago in the Department of Educational Policy Studies. His book, Stuck Improving Racial Equity in School Leadership, analyzes the complex process of racial equity reform within K-12 schools. And he emphasizes that racial equity is dynamic and shifting and ever-emerging as much as our racial consciousness evolves as a nation. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Irby. Thank you, Trina. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, and you said I can call you Dakota, so we just gonna be That's friends. Correct. So Dakota, tell yes. me, tell us a little bit about yourself as a as a human, as a father, as a parent, as a educator, writer. Just yeah, give us a little bit of who you are, so that we can know who we're talking to today. Thank you, um, Trina, for inviting me to be on uh, the the show. 
Um, again, my name is Dakota Irby. Um, a lot of times I write my name is Dakota J. Irby because people back in South Carolina where I grew up call me DJ. Um, as you mentioned, um, I'm a partner um, to a black, beautiful black wife. Uh, I have two wonderful children, um, ages seven and 10. Um, I live in Chicago and I'm very active in my community. Um, everything from working in our local garden and being on uh, the pres uh, the treasurer for our local park council. Um, so I call myself like a hyper local activist. So I'm involved at like a very hyper local level, like a mile radius within my house. Um, and, you know, I'm also a musician, self-taught guitarist. Um, I consider myself a very curious person. So I dibble and dabble in a lot of different things in terms of like music and art. Um, currently working on creating a museum exhibition. I've written a children's book. So I do a little bit of this and that. Sometimes I call it doing the most, but uh, <laughs> I enjoy it. So um, I try to do the things that bring me some joy and that keep my mind and brain stimulated. So that's a little bit about who I am. Nice. Well, welcome, all of you. All of your multiple talents is welcome on the show. Um, yeah, I didn't know about the music and then the art curation. And I knew you wrote books. I knew you were an educator. It's funny, you didn't even mention that part in your introduction because you're like, yeah, that's that's what I do professionally. And then here I am as a community member, a parent, a partner, and all of those identities um, are super yeah, important. Sure. So thank you. Thank yeah. you for bringing all of that to us. So now we know who we're talking to because, you know, y'all will see as curious and creative as Dakota is in his life in terms of art and music and writing books, like all of those brilliant ideas woven together um, will help inform this conversation because we're talking about some complex things. We're talking about racial equity um, in the school system. And we have talked about on this podcast things from like school push out um to choices around what schools whether it be homeschooling as a black parent um i've shared some of my journey um sometimes i beat myself up for some of the choices that i've made around putting my kid in a school that is not predominantly like where he's not the main identity on campus and the choices that we make based on where we live and all of those things and so we're going to talk about it again on a, with another layer, with another perspective. And so i um, excited to hear what your thoughts are, because when we hear the concept like racial equity in schools, um, it can mean so many different things to so many people. Right. And so for you, you know, who's researched this, who's done some logic, who knows studies around this, when you say um, racial equity in schools, kind of like what does it look like and how do we measure if a school is actually like a racially equitable space for our children? Yeah, great. Thank you for the question. So this comes up a lot uh, when people um, ask me, and I think there's a, several different ways that people conceptualize, um, you know, what they mean by equity. I'm going to start with, like, how you know um, equitable opportunities um, are being provided in the educational setting. So I'll just start there, and then I'll go back in terms of, like, um, what some of the indicators are that you might be moving in that direction. So for me, um, I really think about equity in terms of creating uh, the kinds of conditions and opportunities, providing the kinds of resources and access that help Black children in particular. I'm going to focus on this particular conversation on Black children. Please do. Um, really, Please do. <laughs> really focused on, um, you know, their potential um, and their aspirations. Um, and so what that looks like is like children who um, and young people who grow into adults that have a sense of a deep sense of 
dignity. Um, and by dignity, I'm referring to a deep sense of one's self-worth um, combined with uh, understanding a deep sense of other people's self-worth too. Um, and so that's really kind of what I think the end goal is, which can look a number of different ways. Um, in a particular society, in our society, that means the ability to meet multiple different needs, um, you know, your material needs, to be uh, food secure, to be housing secure, um, to have a sense of self, to be an active member of the communities of one's choosing, um, and all of those different sorts of things. So I mentioned that because a lot of it is about um, gaining access to a host of different resources that allow people to feel like they're fully human and have capabilities beyond what they could even imagine for themselves. So what that looks like in schools is that for me, I think schools that are engaged in the production of equitable learning environments, um, you know, do things to make sure that students have that sense of confidence, self-worth, that they see the self-worth of other people and they gain that through access to their history, to um, the kind of learning experiences that allow them to kind of like fail and make up for those failures and learn from failures. It allows them to be curious and ask the questions that they want to ask and have opportunities and access to find ways to construct and develop answers to the questions that they have. Um, so when I think about um, equity, I don't I want to just say that I don't necessarily only think about, you know, uh, you know, grades um, to an extent. College going may be a potentially important part of it. It mm -hmm. may. But for some people, it may not be. Right. Exactly. Um, and so I really think very kind of broadly and expansively about how schools can engage in a process of becoming more racially equitable by thinking about how the schools set themselves up to break predictable patterns that we would see in a white supremacist society. So, for example, if the pattern is black girls steer away from STEM fields, a school that is producing a racially equitable educational experience for black girls is one that breaks that typical pattern and where the girls, the black girls in this particular school are on fire about you know, engineering and biology and so on and so forth, and that they have a sense of confidence, they have the skills that this is something that they can pursue should they want to. Um, so really, the way that I think about whether we know racial equity is happening or not is whether we're doing two things. On one hand, disrupting patterns of white supremacy and the patterns that emerge in a white supremacist society. And number two, on the other hand, creating opportunities and access for people to think and understand themselves anew in a whole new different light. Um, I know that's very philosophical, but I'm happy to give some more concrete examples about um, what that means. But I, I've started to really shift from saying, um, you know, racial equity is a goal to thinking about like the production of racial equity. Um, in the same way we think about the production of inequality and we have a society that produces inequality, capitalism produces inequality. We could think about equity and racial equity in particular as a set of practices and policies that actually produce equity and produce expansive opportunities for black people on an ongoing basis is really how I think about it. Yeah. No, that was not, I mean, maybe I think in philosophical ways, but I was definitely like, yes, that makes a lot of sense to me because I, I think we do think about like, oh, we'll know that we have racial equity when black children are 
getting the same grades or GPAs or college enrollment rates are the same and it's equitable across demographics. And, and like, yeah, those are the technical, tangible ways to possibly note that. But I know there's so many, you know, not, I won't say there's so many, but I, I could imagine there are black children who are doing all those things, who are going to college, who are passing the classes and have high scores, but their spirits may be broken or they might not feel a strong sense of self or they don't have a sense of cultural pride or they're, you know, they're experiencing so much trauma in these spaces where they're getting access. Right. And so I do think there is a both and of um, we have to be disrupting white supremacy, whether, whether it be in the curriculum, whether it be in the who's teaching, um, whether it be in the demographics of the classroom, whether it be in the, the, the school uh, discipline policies, right? We're interrupting white supremacy um, and also creating opportunities for black children to kind of just be free and to see themselves and to be seen and heard and valued. Um, and like, yes. as you were describing it, I was like, oh, it's kind of like sometimes how I talk about I've talked about it in a podcast with someone else about like, well, what does liberation look like on a school, like in schools? Um, and, and, and it can't, and it is, I think what happens is like, it's easier to like be able to make those markers with like grades or GPAs or access to college or college enrollment rates. Right. Because there's all those schools that are like best promise schools are these like neighborhood schools. And like, that's kind of what we're looking at. The goals is like, Oh, all the kids got into college that year. And that's beautiful. And that's amazing. And if that's what young people want to do, great. Um, but I'm always curious about how is their spirit? How is their energy? How is their um, sense of self? You know, um, do they feel yeah. like they have to be a different version of themselves in order to go to that college? Do they have to turn on and off pieces? Do you have to code switch? You know, those things all feel right. as important to me as the other markers of success. What do yeah, you think about absolutely. That? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the same way I think about it. Um, because, you know, as someone who has, you know, a PhD, I went to, you know, College of Charleston, I went to uh, Temple University uh, for my uh, doctoral work, and I had great experiences, right? Um, but then I know I have a lot of colleagues that went to like the more elite schools, you know, they had full rides, everything paid for, they was in these elite spaces. And I'm, I don't have any horror stories. Hmm. They have horror stories. And I'm just like, wow. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm not trying to be um, arrogant with it, but I'm thinking to myself, like, why, why you go through that? Right. Right. Um, and we landed in, you know, similar spots, not the exact same, but uh, you know, we might, our office door, our offices might be next to each other down the hall, or we at the same conference. And I'm thinking about, you went through all that. Um, and, you know, just people spend a lifetime trying to heal and yes. recuperate a lot of the experiences that they have in these institutions that really are trying to mold black people into the conformity that, you know, the white, into white conformity, um, you know, and so it's like, you know, uh, I'm always, when I'm thinking about schools, I'm looking for like, you know, do they offer ethnic studies courses, you know, uh, AP courses are cool. Um, but the ethnic studies courses that give students a different sense of possibility, a different sense, a different kind of aspiration when you're learning about yourself and centering yourself. And, um, you know, it's just not on the radar of most schools because they're trying to get students to conform to, you know, white standards, white Eurocentric standards in terms of what the markers of success are. Um, yeah. yeah, and I I think we need healthy whole people, not people who just have A's. 
Right. Or not people who make a lot of money, but people who uh, have their material needs met and can meet the material needs of their community, but who also have healthy spiritual life, right? Healthy relationships, all of those different sorts of things. And for me, that well, that well-roundedness and balance is really what um, is really important. And oftentimes people aren't focusing on, they're focusing on like these narrow metrics of success. Yeah. So, so as an educator, who's like, you know, you have two little ones, right? Um, I know that I'm assuming when it's time to like choose which school your kid goes to, you know, you're searching and looking and asking like a list of different questions. There might be some academic ones or I'm sure there's some social ones or some social emotional learning ones. Right. So I'm actually curious, you know, because the parents are listening like, well, how do we find how do we know that this school is a racial equity school? Um, what are some things? What are some indicators other than test scores and you know, things of that nature, like, yes, that that's your first layer of, a, you know, when you're looking at a school, you might have multiple layers that you screen through and like, yes, success and academic prowess is probably one. But then how do we do the ra racial equity screening <laughs> that we might need um, to assess a school if it's going to be a safe space for our children? What are some of the questions you ask yourself? Are you Yeah, well, yeah, I ask myself, I ask my, uh, you know, I ask things of teachers in school, I also try to be very attuned to my children mm -hmm. um, and to their needs, which I think is a, oftentimes something that parents overlook because most of the time people are choosing the school and stuff when the baby is not born, which means that you could not possibly have consulted the child, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. So, but, you know, so I try to consult the child, you know, try to consult my children. I ask them about things. But, you know, the other part of it, though, is that, you know, children don't know everything. Adults have the benefit of having wisdom, um, having lived, having an understanding uh, that is different from now, not necessarily superior to, but different from what different. children know. I love that. Things. So um, it's really a back and forth type combination of trying to think about, like, who my children were. Um, some of the things that were kind of like non-negotiables for me was that um, I wanted my children to be in an environment with a lot of black people. Um, I wanted them to have black teachers. I can get into it if we need to, but that's not a panacea and perfection doesn't mean perfection. We come in all different you know, flavors and have all different kinds of styles. But um, <laughs> I did think that it was important to um, have plenty of black people around them and surrounded with black people. And that's both in terms of like, you know, where we chose to live, as well as the schools that um, we had to be a part of. I really wanted them to have the opportunity to see um, Black people running things, um, Black people getting things right, Black people doing well. The other thing that I really tried to look for is I tried to pay attention to whether I felt there was a sense of happiness and joy in the learning environment, mm. um, which happiness and joy aren't always pleasant, I mean, are always present in a learning environment. There are times when learning is difficult and challenging and frustrating. Understandably, there's learning and insight on the other side of that discomfort. But in general, it shouldn't be 80% discomfort and, you know, not being pleasant. It should be the other way around. 80% joy, fun, and then, you know, you got 20% where I'm struggling on X, Y, and Z. So I think that productive academic struggle is uh, useful um, and beneficial. But so, I think for me, you know, plenty of black people, um, for people who have that option was one thing. The second thing, again, was happiness and joy. And then the third thing was, you know, really how 
the students will have opportunities to demonstrate um, their understanding of the content and the material, how they will be learning. Um, so I'm more averse to like worksheets. I want students to have opportunities to do kind of hands-on things, science experiments, to be able to kind of go outside um, and kind of like learn, you know, I, I would love project-based learning. My children aren't in the project-based learning school, um, but they have the opportunity to do some like hands-on things. So I'm looking at the resources that are available and that when they're learning math, do they have access to manipulatives and different kinds of things where they can like move things around to learn math and learn mathematical concepts. So those are the kind of things that I was really looking for. Um, and I think the final thing is just trying to put children into an environment where I feel like adults um, teach towards their potential um, as opposed to remedial heavy emphasis on remediation and basic skills and that sort of thing, which is which has its place, which is important. Mm -hmm. But I think some of those uh the academic press and giving students and giving young people a challenge and an opportunity to work through problems to me is very important. So those are some of the things that I look for. Um, more practically, a principal and teachers that are approachable and that want to work with you, um, which again is not always 100% been my experience. Sometimes I found out very early off that I needed to pull that uh, PhD, put that PhD at the end of my name. So mm. people sense. Um, so yeah, you know, uh, those are the kind of things that I would look for. Um, and then I, I'm always checking in with my children. I think this is something that I tell a lot of people is that a lot of people say, how does, how was school today? How's it going? The thing that I ask my children is what did you learn today? Um, what did you learn today that you didn't know yesterday? Tell me about what you're learning. So now they always know that our conversations about school are about learning. So I ask, what did you learn? today that you didn't know tell me about something you learned um i expect for them to be able to tell me something they learn every day mm -hmm. um and i also ask how do people treat you um and i'm specific was anybody mean to you were people did anybody do anything nice to you that you felt was really cool or really nice and then i also ask them how they treated people as well so those are kind of like the three questions that i ask pretty much like every day on that like walk back and the other thing this is not necessarily a school-based thing but just as a parent, I always tell my children, like, how much I miss them during the day, Aww. you know? Yeah, I just be like, man, you know, God, dog, I'm glad to see you. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm glad to see y'all. I miss y'all today. Um, and I do that because I want them to know that um, they have somebody in the world who wants them around. So um, so those are some of the kind of things that um, I think are are important, especially that learning, asking what they're learning, because um, that's what they're supposed to go to school to do is to learn. Okay, I just want to say, uh, my heart, my heart. Um, you're taking me out with the, I always tell them I miss them. That was, I could imagine the joy and the like, uh, the deep love that y'all have in terms of connection. Because imagine how it feels to be missed every day you're gone. It means, it means that someone actually like cares for you and wants to see you around. So that feels really sweet. Um, sorry, I focused on that. I'm not sorry I focused on that. That was just it's really sweet. <laughs> That's the one. I mean, I wrote notes about all the other things, right? So you asking your children, what did they learn today? How did people treat them today? How did they treat other people today? Um, That's some beautiful social emotional learning. And also, I love that you put your, your children at the center of decisions 
Um, even if, you know, the adults will make the decisions. Yes, we're wiser. We have some wise in different ways. I'm not even going to say we're wiser. We're wise in different ways. Young people have all their own learning and experiences, and so they're so intuitive. Um, and I think young people are brilliant. I used to be a youth organizer, so I often am like, well, they know the answer. Let's ask them. Um, and so I appreciate that you center uh, them in the, the, the decisions and the thinking. And, and you're right. We sometimes pre-predict what we think our children are going to be like, right? So I'm a person who's neurotypical, you know, uh, type A a little bit, you know, A student, wanted to always have good grades. I was just a nerd, right? And then, you know, I assume that I'm going to, you know, my kid's going to have same thing and then my kid has learning differences and has different needs and so all of my ideas about what school he would go to and what he would do and what he would enjoy and oh my gosh you're going to read all these books together and it's like my kid has dyslexia so I had to actually pivot and actually center him and be like okay so what how do you learn and what do you need and and like choosing schools and having conversations with him well how do you like this school is this a good fit what did you learn how does it make you feel like definitely in all of those conversations so I do think it's important to to not just have these ideas of where we want our kids to go, but actually think about our kid because there's people who have multiple kids and like one school might be really great for one child and not the best space necessarily for the other child, just in terms of like how they learn learning styles and, and all of the needs that they may have. So I really mm -hmm. just want to say, I appreciate you centering your kids um, in all of the, in all of the conversations around school because it is about them. Um, and, and, you yeah, know, Go ahead. Yeah, no, it's 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 a uh, ongoing process to continually do that. But um, yeah, you know, I was not the the A student. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, <laughs> I was the I nerd. Daughter, I, <laughs> my daughter is very much concerned with those grades. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm like, these grades don't matter. What you what you learning? You know? Oh my god, and that's my know, kid. Which I'm so surprised because I've right. let I've let go of a lot of that. I was that way and then I you know as an adult I'm like, "Oh, that that doesn't even matter." It's like, "What are you learning? How do you feel about yourself?" You know, "How do you feel yeah. about what you're learning?" right? And I'll just be like, "Don't worry about it. Oh my goodness, the way he stresses about a B." <laughs> I'm like, "It's a B. Oh, yeah. It's fine." I'll, I'll just be like, "It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay." You know what I mean? Like Yeah, <sighs> so that's a trip because I was very laid back like, "Ah, you know, it's it's good. It's probably get a C, maybe a C plus. Says good, says you know? says the guy who flexes his PhD. <laughs> but the interesting thing though is that like I didn't know what a PhD, I didn't know what graduate school was or any of that when I was growing up because mm -hmm. I didn't have anybody who. But I was like, once I found out, like, oh, okay, you get to read, write, ask, and try to answer questions. And talk for a living. I was like, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> um, you know, so. That's I mean, all it, you it, do now. <laughs> you know, it, it, it requires some discipline in terms of like developing, you know, some particular skills around like discipline of writing and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, nobody ever said that like, you know, this is something that you could do, you know, because I enjoy having conversations like this, but I do it in a classroom, right? And, and debate and. I can be curious and I don't have to know all the answers. I can do research to try to figure things out and so on and so forth. And so when I got to graduate school, not college, college was pretty rough for me. But when I got to graduate school, I, it was, it was, I was on fire. I yeah. loved it. Cause you were in your zone. Um, I was in my zone. I didn't even know that that zone existed. You mm -hmm. know, it took my, it took my college professors always telling me and encouraging me 
you should go to graduate school. And I was like, I don't even know what graduate school is. They were like, well, I think you would like it. You know, you have a lot of autonomy. You get to choose your topics, so on and so forth. Um, and so they're the ones who really pushed me to go to graduate school. And when I got there, I started to understand why they thought it would be a good fit for me because I didn't fit in their classes. They knew I didn't fit in their class. You know, I, you know, they knew I wasn't doing the best. I wasn't reaching my full potential in their classes because the way that things were set up was not designed for me to actually reach into my potential. Um, and so, you know, I just try to think about how some students would like benefit tremendously if they had access to a different kind of autonomy and that sort of thing in terms of their learning and what they want to pursue, what questions they want to ask, how they want to demonstrate the mastery of them, um, you know, earlier in life. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because you're naming that. I have two questions that are bubbling based on what you just shared. So I'll try to remember my second one. Um, the first one is you're naming like as a child growing up, right, that you didn't have an affinity for like education in the same way. I mean, I won't say you didn't have affinity, but like the grades and stuff didn't matter. You didn't even know that the PhD was a thing and that you could do that and what graduate school meant. Um, and so the one question is like you talk about these educators um, who who saw that and who saw you not succeeding in their class and did not name that as your problematic you're failing, we don't want you because you don't fit. Um, but they actually saw you don't fit here. You know, this is not it. But here's you have so much potential to do this. Right. They could see you see your gifts and see your skills. Right. Um, I'm curious because it feels like it was the it was the educators, the administrators. Right. Your mentors. Um, how can we get more black educators and mentors, administrators to support black students um, to see their full potential? And also, I don't I'm assuming that those folks were black for you, but also like how can non-black educators do that? Because I know, you know, there are going to be young people who are in places where there's non-black educators and administrators. So that's my question, because it seems like they were very pivotal for you. Yeah, for sure. So I'll come back around to this kind of explanation. But when I was in high school, I would say that like joining my speech and debate team is what mm. sparked my sparked everything for me yeah that's what so I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute um administrators and teachers have a tremendous amount of pressure to help students perform well on tests mm, that's the focus I, that's the focus right unfortunately i think in a in their practice and their professional kind of uh dispositions are probably against that um, a lot of people, you know, in our uh, doctoral program, I work with um, administrators and, you know, I'm in the College of Education and I know that teachers have a broader set of aspirations for their students, but the policies require that they prepare students to perform well on tests. Unfortunately, Unfortunately. Um, so, um, so they have a lot of that pressure. So. I think that it requires them to try to um, spend an inordinate amount of time focus on like, you know, helping students do well on tests. Um, so like memorizing so, facts and regurgitating data and learning formulas, which is not yeah, about like critical thinking. <laughs> right. Learning procedures, um, getting through the curriculum, depending on the school, depending on the school district. Um, you know, if it's a school district that has kind of a more kind of standardized approach to their curriculum, they have to they have to get through the curriculum, right? This part of this month, this part of the year, 
you're supposed to be on this part of the map, X, Y, Z, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of um, pressure on teachers and administrators to be able to meet the demands, the, the top-down demands of policymakers who are often not very uh, connected to what's happening in the classroom and certainly not aware and familiar with like theories of learning and pedagogy and all that kind of stuff. They're concerned with the score, with the test scores and with performance on standardized tests and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So that really undercuts teachers, um, you know, and administrators willingness to like take risk and give students the opportunity to, you know, wrestle with ideas and to be creative. Right. So for example, like, you know, one of the things that I do with my children a lot is I give them, you know, like math stuff that might take them three weeks to figure out. Um, and we'll just talk about it every day. Oh, yeah, yo, you know, and they'll come back to it like, yeah, I was thinking about, you know, what the profit would be if I actually like flip that condo based on what you said, if it was this. And I'm trying to figure out, like, if you put this much into it and it's a down payment, like I ask them these hard questions. And if you continue to ask young people those questions, their wheels are turning. And they'll keep thinking about the same math problem for like a month or six weeks. I'm okay with that. That's good. That's healthy. That's how you learn how to solve problems using mathematical thinking because engineers make up formulas, right? Like math is actually can be something that we think of as creative. Every formula that exists that we use in a book, somebody created it. So if we think about helping young people be creative with all the things that they're doing in terms of their solving their problems, then it means that we have to give them more time and administrators and teachers don't have the luxury of time, unfortunately. So I think that, so this relates to, you know, I used to just go through the motions to get stuff done, you know what I'm saying? Because one of the things that I had learned really quickly in school was that, you know, there's this time crunch, you need to get things done. You need to be able to do these multiplication facts in this amount of time, which that fluency and understanding multiplication is important, but the conceptual understandings are really important too. But we don't ever see, you know, it's rare to see a classroom that has like an abacus in front of students. An abacus gives students an incredible conceptual understanding of math. Um, but we use different, but anyway, I'm not gonna go down that, that rabbit hole. But the thing is, is that once I hit you know, I think my teachers knew, you know, like I was the kind of student that it was just like, look, they give me the syllabus. They We got 10 homework assignments. I do seven. Right. Because I'm just like, I'm cool with the C. I'm not about to take the time to do these other three. As long as I don't get the D, I'm cool. You know, mm. I was the kind of student who would like figure out what score I would need. And I would literally be like, I ain't even got to pass this test. And I still gonna pass the class, you know what I'm saying? I got some students so, like you in my class right now. <laughs> yeah. So but, what does that mean? <laughs> I feel like, okay, sorry, I'm cutting you off. Because it reminds, I'm curious because I'm actually curious because I wonder if there's something energetically that feels familiar um, about somehow the way that my son is engaging school. Um, it's like, I need to just do what I need to do to get this done. Right. Yeah. Like, well, what do I need to get this done? What do I need? But he's trying to still get the A, to be honest. But he's like, well, what do I need to get the yeah. A? Um, it's not necessarily like he's personally connected to the content necessarily. Um, right. So help me understand. Well, how did you get from that to now where you are? So I can see what his potential trajectory will be. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I think some of it what I had to learn about myself is that I'm. 
as committed, probably more committed to the process as I am like the outcome. So for me, the performance in terms of the outcome, like the A or getting the work turned in on time, like I was never on time with stuff, you know, none of that really mattered that much to me. Um, I didn't care about how people thought I performed on things. I was always more interested in kind of like the inner workings of the process and my own kind of thinking. And I didn't know the word metacognition, but I was interested in like how I think about my thinking and how I think about things. And I also was interested in how other people thought about things. So I'm like, if I'm trying to do something for a class, I'm really caught up in a lot of the process oriented stuff. Uh, whereas other people are just like, I don't need a new process. The teacher gave me the procedure. I want to learn the procedure and get this done so that I can demonstrate my performance, you know, with the outcome. So that just wasn't me. And I think that, um, you know, I mentioned my uh, speech and debate. And when I started um, with debate, my teacher, debate teacher's name was Debbie Barron, a white woman. Um, and, I, you know, I was argumentative. I would like, you know, argue. I would have an opinion, X, Y, Z. And I got introduced to Lincoln-Douglas debate. And when I got introduced to Lincoln-Douglas debate, for the listeners, don't, listeners that don't know what Lincoln-Douglas debate is, it's a debate format where you don't necessarily know which part or which, you know, part of the um, the scenario or problem or issue you're going to debate. You get a, you get you either going to say yay or nay, and then you got to come up with the formulation of you how you're going to debate what that particular issue is. No, you have time to prepare. Oh, okay. I was like, ooh. <laughs> yeah, you have you have time to prepare and everything, but um. You know, it was just kind of like, yeah, I love this, right? Because my whole goal is I got to be strategic about how to, like, destroy this other person's argument, which means that I have to understand multiple ways to think about this particular issue or problem, including I have to be able to anticipate how they're going to think about it mm -hmm. um, and be able to offer rebuttals and so on. So there's a particular format that Lincoln-Douglas debate, but I got into that. And then I started um, with this thing called Youth in Government, which was uh, this program in a high school. The y? I used to run. I used to run Youth in Government when I was at yes. the YMCA. <laughs> yeah, so I did Youth in Government, Such and I started learning. About, like, yeah, I loved it. I loved it every minute of it. Um, you know, we wrote. So we had this thing at our youth and government, we was able to take over the state capital, mm -hmm. the high schoolers, but they were to take over the state capital for a week. Exactly. And yeah. I was I became like the floor leader. I remember my first bill, which failed that I wrote. I was in ninth or 10th grade. I wrote a bill to equalize the the, the, uh, the sentencing for crack cocaine and powder cocaine. Oh, you were doing the minimum. You I was were doing, doing the mandatory back. minimums. You were just, trying to interrupt the but, mandatory minimum sentencing when you was no, a kid? No, I was trying to disrupt that. I was trying to disrupt it. This was in the, you know, the, the ninth, early 90s. <laughs> you was bad. ahead of your time. I, you, you know, it's a trip because um, I still actually have like a little scrapbook of all my high school stuff. And I have the legislation that I introduced, which failed miserably, right? Everybody was like, you know, it was mostly white people. Of course, was, no, they don't even understand. They're like, they're like, crack is whack. <laughs> right. Yeah, Exactly. So, you know, um, but I mean, my thing is that I was really into that stuff. And so that's what just, that's what like really was, uh, that's what I was into, that process, the debate, the thinking about ideas. I was, I'm a, I, I consider myself like an ideas person. Like I like ideas. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Generative so, and stuff. Yeah. And, and I can appreciate because I feel like um, one of my children, well, both of them, but, you know, my son is very much like that. He thinks outside the box. And I can understand why people think that a lot of the times he don't make no sense. I'll give you a concrete example. We have um, Family Feud on uh, the Nintendo Switch. And so we was playing a, a Family Feud. And the question was something along the lines, like, what is something that you prepare for Thanksgiving the day in advance? Mm-hmm. So we go through all the things, like six responses on a little board. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody naming foods. Right. Cranberry sauce, turkey, something, right? You try to guess all these things. His turn comes around. He says, the table. Exactly. So he's like, I'm you gotta like, set the table in advance. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, but if if you have a kid who says something like that and is in an environment where everybody like that's a crazy answer, which it wasn't up there, it got an X, right? But some people would think that's a crazy answer. Whereas for me, I'm just like, wow, that's brilliant out the box thinking. Yeah. I mean, and he, it's right. He's right though. You, you, you do, you do need, you could, you could set the table. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like his thinking. I get excited about brains. I, I mean, I, I don't study brains, but really I, when I say I'm like, Oh my gosh, I love your brain. It's like, I just love the way you think, <laughs> you know? And I'd be like, I always want to tease apart. I'm like, so tell me how you think about it. Because I could hold the complexity of like, I think something completely different, but I actually want to know how you think about it because our thoughts about the same thing can coexist because of simultaneity. Um, and so I do get yeah. really excited about that. So yeah, that's, right. it's really generative. Um, you know, there was something that I had a question about um, earlier. You were talking about how when you go to schools and you're looking for particular things that you flex your PhD sometimes. Right. Not not in a way that's like, oh, look at me. But like it goes a long way when, when sometimes the academics or the, prof- the the school folks aren't trying to hear you. And so I think something that came up for me is, you know, like. I want black parents to feel empowered and emboldened and, you know, have the dignity and all the power to go into schools and like demand a request or to ask the questions. But like, how can you do that? How do we get black parents to feel that way when they might enter environments that may not treat them well um, or may make them feel less than or they might feel disempowered, especially when, you know, these folks supposedly are the quote unquote educated ones are wiser or smarter, you know, than mm-hmm. a parent who might be like, well, I only graduated from high school or I don't have a degree. And so just thinking about, you know, we want we want our children to feel a sense of like pride and power. But there's some parents mm-hmm. who also don't feel that um especially if they had poor experiences growing up with school, especially if they had educators tell them they weren't smarter. And, you know, like there's some of that, like, you know, interrupting cycles as well. So just thinking about how do we support parents? And I know, you know, you wrote this book, you know, it's about education and academia, but um, as a black parent, like what, how can we support black parents in order to like feel um, empowered sounds so like not the right word, but, how do we support black parents and how can black parents utilize your materials, your resources in order to like support themselves as they're advocating for their children? Yeah. I mean, this is really tough. I, um, I don't think I understood the magnitude of how people disrespect parents until I was a parent trying to like interface with these institutions, um, including, yeah, 
Yeah. Across the board, basically, is what I think you're trying to say. (laughs) It happens in all the schools. (laughs) Yeah, we talking talking summer camps. You know what I'm saying? You name it. You know, like, just, you know, wow, right? So, you know, it's, I think part of it is, and I, I think part of what schools can do, I mean, educators can do is to, you know, build relationships with parents. And then I'm going to talk a little about what parents can do. But I think part of it is, is that, you know, I appreciate so much the teachers and people who ask you about your children and ask you to fill out that little worksheet. What are the things they like? What are the things you would like me to know about your child? What are their strengths? What are any anxieties that you have? So just getting a sense of kind of like that opens up a dialogue and it demonstrates that, you interested in what the parents think about their children and what the parents do to support their children. Um, and so I think that that's a really important thing, which is different than just like, give me your emergency contact information, so on and so forth. It's very simple. You can send a piece of paper, you can send it, send it home. Um, it's even better if you, if teachers and educators encourage the parents to fill it out with their child so they can talk through it. Um, so with my children, they give us those sheets. And then I say like, you know, these are my opinions about my child. Right. And then I let, you know, my children kind of like read it and then they get that offer, like their opinions too. And we oftentimes respond differently, you know? Um, and it opens up a good conversation for me and, you know, my children as well. Um, so I think just like asking parents, just taking the time to ask parents, like, what do their children find supportive? What do they do? To support their children including again what kind of anxieties or worries that you have because yeah. sometimes i find that a lot of the conflict emerges from a place of deep anxiety right people worried about whether their baby is doing x y or z or if they're you know performing well enough and all those sorts of things and so people get nervous and i find that a lot of parents get really a lot of get very anxious about their child's education and with a lot of friends and people who I know, I say, you know, they're going to be okay. The kids today are learning a lot more than we were learning when we was at school. Trust me, right? Like, they're 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 going to be all right. And I say, you know, they're going to be all right. So just trying to trying to you know do that. So that speaks to the other thing that I think parents can do is that the I think the most important thing is to be a part of a parent community. Um, whether that's people who are parents at the same school or whether it's a group of friends who have children who are around the same ages, like that support group and support system is really important because what I've found is that educators, schools, these institutions, they only respond to power. Mm, if you say that again. If you're powerless, if you're powerless, they disrespect you. Period. Mm. And that disrespect can be like, I'm not talking to you. Or that disrespect can be I'm talking down on you. Mm. You don't know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. You got to be able to show and flex some kind of power. So when I say I put the PhD behind my name, that's a power move. Mm-hmm. What There's are other, other ways parents that with... parents can get power and flex power? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the parents, right? If people are really well read, uh, you know, understanding policies, understanding procedures, that that knowledge is a form of power. Mm-hmm. Getting involved, if the venue and the avenue is there in uh, ways to be engaged in the governance of the school, whether it's a parent-teacher organization. In Chicago, we have these things called uh, LSCs, local school councils. So running for the local school council, going to the local school council meeting. So 
engaging in whatever kinds of uh, participatory decision making or deliberation processes or advisory groups that are available is a form of power. Mm -hmm. um, another form of power is like, you know, having having a squad, right? Like I always tell people there's a um, it's different to go about whatever a problem you're having if you got five, six other families with you. Right. You go in there by yourself, they're going to gaslight you. They're going to say, oh, you such and such a problem. And I mean, I just feel like, no, like these things are going on. So you got to really have relationships mm -hmm. with people who are going to take your side first, not exclusively, but to take your side and hear what you have to say first and really take that to heart and take that seriously and operate from a place that your concerns matter. That's the community that you have to have, that you have a right to advocate for your child. And that can be done and should be done in groups rather than as individually, because when you do it individually, it's a problem. Another form of power is writing mm -hmm. for people who are comfortable writing. Put stuff in writing. Send, Send a note. that email. Send an email. Copy such and such. Yeah. Create a paper trail for yourself. Yeah. All of these forms of exercising and demonstrating that you're going to utilize different forms of power are what get people to sit down and talk to you like they got some sense. I sure I can I can attest to that. I mean, <clears throat> I utilize my platform as power. I have gotten uh, the principals or the school leaders to shift the way that they engage with me. I've gotten the school. He, my son was going to private school for a little bit, a school that specialized in students with learning disabilities or learning differences. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, I, I pushed, I was like, I need a reparations. <laughs> I was like, we need, we need a discount. We need a scholarship. What is this number that you're trying to give us? So like you, you, you there is a way to build power that doesn't require you to have like, um, a particular educational level, right? There is power in numbers, there's power in people, there's power in our word, um, there's collective power. And like, yeah, the schools don't like when I'm like, well, I spoke to five other parents who have experienced similar things, you know? Um, would yeah. you like me to bring them all together to a meeting? We'd like to meet with you. You know, they, they start to hear things because parents have so much power, although the schools try to imply that we don't. We have so much power in schools. Um, yeah, for and they don't want us to think that. They want us to just pick our kids up and drop them off. And it's like, no, we're showing up. We're yeah. going to be here. And so I appreciate you speaking to um, parental power and how do we activate it. Um, and that's something that we're always thinking about at Parenting for Liberation because we're thinking about what are the ways that we can operate and operationalize um, and build our collective power to hold these systems accountable that are holding space for our babies. And sometimes they're causing harm. So I do yeah. appreciate that as well. Yeah, it's and I would say, you know, part of it, too, is to always encourage parents to proactively think about the power. Right. So start forming those relationships now, because typically it's not a matter of if you need to harness that power. It's a matter of when and who. Um, and you're not and so often only you're not only necessarily using your power to interrupt or disrupt. Sometimes you're using your power to build. So it's important to have the power any even if nothing bad is happening. You exactly. could be like, I'm using my power to bring these people together. I'm using my power to ha host this like Black History Month thing. Like sometimes you're just using your, you, you could also leverage your power for good. It doesn't have to be always to disrupt, Absolutely. you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I mean, a lot of people don't like to talk about power, but my, it's the easiest way to name what you need to successfully interact with schools. Yeah. yeah. You need power. The question becomes which forms of power do I have access to and which forms of power do I need to cultivate and build so that I have it? 
And one of the tools is learning and education. Um, and so I believe like your, you know, um, as we wrap, I did want to share like your tools, your resources that you've created are also a way of like building power because knowledge is power. Do you want to share with folks how they can get access to your books and your other writings and all the other incredible work that you're doing and the, the event you're having in February at Black History Month? You should share that too. Yeah, sure. So um, the books, so one of them you mentioned before is called Stuck Improving Racial Equity in School Leadership. It's published by Harvard Education Press. Uh, you can find it uh, at Amazon uh, or you can find it on Harvard Education Press's website, but Amazon, if you just Google Stuck Improving Racial Equity in School Leadership. Um, another book that I like to share is called Dignity Affirming Education is published by Teachers College Press. It's also available on Amazon. And then I have a book, a children's picture book called Magical Black Tears, a protest story. That is not available on Amazon because we want to keep all of the dollars within our own community. That is available uh, from for direct sale to uh, through magicalblacktears.com. Uh, we're also uh, in the process of developing a traveling museum exhibition for the Magical Black Tears book. And um, a pilot of it is opening in Milwaukee, Wisconsin at Milwaukee Area Technical College for the month of February this year. We're really excited about it. Um, I can, you can find me on uh, Twitter and other social media platforms. My Twitter is Dakota Irby. My IG is Dakota Black. Those are the two that I'm most active on. The one-stop shop for everything is DakotaIrby.com. Yes, and we'll link to the the one the 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 one stop shop on our on our podcast profile. Um, yeah, thank you so much for sharing your your brilliance, your knowledge, your wisdom, and your gifts, and just really appreciate you sharing a little bit also of you of the way that you parent and the way that you center your children in all of the work that you do. And so that definitely rang true. So thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Parenting for Liberation. I hope something on this episode will inspire you on your parenting journey. Please like us on all social media at Parenting for Liberation. Until next time, let's get free, y'all.